Please stand as you are able. Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the treasury. For all of them who have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And then what do you say? That's fine. You may be seated. Well, that was worth the whole worship service, wasn't it? (laughs) Uh, Thank you to the Clements family uh, for their leadership, not only today, but also their leadership in our OFAM ministry. And uh, my goodness, uh, this choir, that is about as close to heaven as I have felt in a long, long, long time. Amen. Amen. Uh, I, I have to tell you, that's better than Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. That's a lot better than the Patriots. Uh, so we're so grateful to you. And Leslie Mann, Dr. Mann, uh, who is one of our own, who is part of our chancel choir here. Leslie, I believe if you keep working with him, you're going to do some good things. I think you're going to do some good things. It's wonderful. Thank you. And to all the frozen chosen who have made it this morning in the, this winter Sabbath, uh, we welcome you. We're continuing this series two more weeks to, today and next Sunday on this series that we've been calling The Art of Sharing. The Widow's Might that you just heard read is one of the most familiar stories in all the Scripture. In fact, to many of us, it's probably overly familiar. There are some texts that are so well known that they become to our ears like elevator music, where the tune is so common that it no longer gets our attention. So as soon as you begin to hear that story, you think to yourself, I know that story, I'm checking out. I said to my wife the other day that one of the ways that I know I'm getting older is that I now recognize the music in the elevator. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I was in town this week, I got on an elevator, took it to the seventh floor, and there was an old three-dog night song. I think it was Jeremiah was a bullfrog, and it was now it's instrumental, sounded like it had been arranged by Lawrence Welk. And, and so here I'm, I find myself humming in a crowded elevator, which was a bit frightening to the other passengers, another sign of aging. But the widow's might is a little bit like that. It's like an old stream that's so fished out that we don't even cast our line in that hole anymore. 
One of the common pitfalls, and I'm being confessional at this point, one of the common pitfalls in our teaching and preaching is that we have a tendency to neglect context when we're teaching. In other words, sometimes we don't really pay attention in the Scripture to the framework of the story, to the setting or to the background, the circumstances in which the story occurs. And when we do that, when we take a story out of context, we miss out on meaning. Or worse, we actually impose our own meaning on the text. Politicians do this regularly. Preachers often do it as well sometimes intentionally taking things out of context, especially when it doesn't fit our own presuppositions. Some of you, you've heard a sermon that was looking for a text. Don't answer that, please. One of the disservices that we do to the Scripture is that we have divvied it up, haven't we, in chapters and verses. This happened in the 16th century. And while it helps to locate your favorite text, it can also distort the meaning of the text. And I believe, and maybe you found this to be true too, a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. I want to say it again. Some of you are wondering, what did he say? A text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. And the real victim when we proof text the Scriptures is truth. And so in order to understand this old elevator music text, I want to widen the angle of the lens for just a few moments. Did you know that in the chapter prior to what the Clements read for us, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem He's receiving a king's welcome. You remember the story? It's the story of Palm Sunday. It's the triumphant entry. It's a ticker tape parade that Jesus receives on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, for he's a jolly good Jesus. And and here he comes. And once he's in the city, he goes to the temple. And in the temple, he sees an institution that has become so corrupt and so compromised that Jesus cannot keep his mouth closed. And so he turns the tables, he flips the house, and he spends the next few days of that week that we call Holy Week teaching in the temple courts and being grilled, interrogated by the Pharisees. They're trying at this point to bring him down. They are looking for a way to get rid of this uppity Galilean rabbi from a hick town called Nazareth. That's the context. And Jesus seals his fate in chapter 12, verse 38, when he speaks in a derogatory manner about the religious hierarchy. Now listen to what he says. Imagine that the temple now is full of Pharisees, scribes, and others that he's teaching. And Jesus says these words, beware Look out for the religious scholars who love to walk around in academic gowns, kind of like this. Beware of those who are preening and processing in the service, in the radiance of public flattery, a little bit like we did just a moment ago. 
who are basking in prominent positions, sitting at the head of the table, at the head of the chancel in chairs like these. For they devour, listen, they devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance, they say long flowery prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And those were fighting words in the ears of the temple bureaucracy. Not only is Jesus in this context accusing them of being superficial and inauthentic, he is implying that they are exploiting the very ones that they're supposed to be helping, the widows. Remember James 1.27, a key verse, a life verse, religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is to look after the widow and the orphan in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This, this is why ministries like OFAM are essential to the people of God. This is why people come on Tuesday night to room in the inn and serve homeless women who are in need of help. This is the reason for harvest hands and healing housing. So when you read the widow's might in that context, it takes on new meaning. It means at least, at least two things. It can be read as we typically read it as a beautiful act of shared generosity, but it can also be read as a warning of the potential manipulation and abuse of the institutional church. I invited a neighbor friend recently to come to worship at Bumsey, and he said something like this, thanks but no thanks, I'm not much on organized religion. To which I replied, then you would love our church because it's not always so organized. In fact, sometimes, I don't know if you found this to be true, I have, it's pretty messy sometimes. It's pretty chaotic. Alan Hirsch, one of my favorite writers, once said, the church is a mix of order and chaos. I'm not much for organized religion, he said, and I thought to myself, would you prefer disorganized religion? I'm not sure that God, I'm not sure that the Holy Spirit has anything against order, by the way, particularly when we just finished Genesis where it says that God in the beginning of creation organized the chaos. That's what God does. He takes our chaos and he shapes it into something that is meaningful. So what are we to make of this text? Maybe Jesus is rejecting our need for faith community. Maybe we don't need church anymore. There are some who are writing such. Maybe Jesus is actually dismissing the need for what we're doing here today. Maybe we don't really need corporate worship. Maybe we don't need discipleship, accountability, maybe. But isn't it interesting that Jesus, who was a prophet, never left the synagogue? even when the synagogue left him. It's interesting, one of those early verses in Luke's gospel said, and Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. It was his habit. It was his life. It was his sanity. Jesus never denied the need for spiritual leadership 
for clergy. I, for one, buddy, you too, we're grateful for that. Jesus never said you don't need clergy, you don't need pastors. But he is saying, be wary, watch out for those who turn faith into a show, for those who take worship and turn it into an infomercial. Be wary of those who turn piety into a production and prayer into a performance. Beware. I remember a comment I once heard when I was in North Georgia. Sherry and I were in Atlanta, of course, for 31 years. And I once heard someone say something about a former bishop that was very convicting. They said of him, he had a lot in the showroom, but very little in the storehouse. And that wasn't a compliment. A few years ago, I went to an ordination service, another denomination, and I noticed in the bulletin that the ordaining elder in the service was referred to in the bulletin as the very reverend John Brown. And when I saw him, our eyes met, I remembered him from younger days, back when he wasn't even mildly reverend, and now he's suddenly very reverend. And I kind of chuckled to myself, and then I thanked God that my name wasn't in the bulletin because it would have said the mostly irreverend Davis Chapel. But I thought, isn't it interesting how enamored we can become with prefixes and titles and file and rank? The most lethal form of pride is religious pride. Reminds me of another story, an elevator story that you know Jesus told the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that one? That's a good one. Two men go to temple to pray. One is a religious professional, a clergyman. The other is a Roman IRS agent. They couldn't be more different. The religious professional stood and prayed, listen to this, thus with himself. That doesn't sound right. And we're given a window into his prayer life. You know what he said? Lord, I just want to thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a robber, a crook, and I'm certainly, heaven forbid, not like this tax agent. For you know, Lord, I fast two times a week and give a tithe of all that I have. Lord, you certainly are lucky to have me. <laughs> Meanwhile, the IRS agent is weeping. He can't get his head out of his hands. He's repenting. He cannot look up to the ceiling, but he cries out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. One of them was preening and the other was praying. One of these men was playing church and the other meant business. And Jesus said, guess which one of them went home justified that day? The tax man. And then he turned to his disciples and he said something that we'll never forget. He said, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to simply be yourself, you will become more than yourself by God's grace. When I use my faith as a pretext for privilege and gain, Jesus will call me out. 
and has. When you become more concerned about self-service than sacrifice, Jesus will call you out. Now contrast all of that context with the example of this widow. Look at her. She's the most vulnerable. She's the most helpless. She's the most needy person in town that day, but she's still giving. She has little or nothing to offer, but she's still offering. Historians tell us that in Herod's temple, some of you have been there. I've been there to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. Some of us are going again in February. In Herod's temple, there was a place called the Court of the Women. And in that court, there were 13 receptacles in the shape of trumpets, every trumpet, every receptacle representing a specific mission or ministry or charity. And you could choose where you were going to donate your contributions. And the Scripture says that Jesus was watching people as they gave their offering. He saw many well-to-do, well-healed folk giving large gifts, and Jesus never minimizes that. Large and small alike are honored. But Jesus gets really juiced up by this woman's gift, and it really isn't anything to brag about at first. It's two, it's two coins. They call them lepta in that day. It was the smallest coin in circulation. In fact, in my research, I discovered that those two coins were the equivalent of six minutes pay for a minimum wage blue-collar worker. I mean, let's face it, it wasn't going to fix the roof. It wasn't going to purchase the music for the choir. It wasn't going to tune the piano. It wasn't even going to provide the bread for the soup kitchen. But it caught Jesus' eye. And for Jesus, it wasn't the amount of the gift. It was the sacrifice represented in the gift. Jesus is funny when it comes to counting offering. He doesn't do it like our ushers do. He doesn't just measure the amount we give. He measures the amount we have left after we give. Others gave of their surplus, and she gave out of her poverty. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> it should, because that's exactly what Jesus would do at the end of this week called Holy Week. Her gift became a precursor to his gift. Her offering provided the context of his offering on Good Friday. And it serves to widen the angle of the gospel. Let me give you one example and then I'm finished. I have a friend who is the associate pastor over at Athens First United Methodist Church. Are any choir members from Georgia over here? Lift your hand if you are. Can you say, Go dogs? Go dogs. Our son went to University of Georgia. Betsy Butler is the pastor. I think that UGA is the only team that has a chance against Alabama, maybe Clemson. And by the way, that's a prayer concern for you. <laughs> Betsy Butler is the associate at First Methodist Athens. It's about two blocks. Their, their building is about two blocks from a community called Bethel Homes, 
which back in the day people would have referred to as the projects. And they have a ministry together. The ministry is there's a group of women at, at that church in Athens uh, that goes over into the Bethel Homes community, Super Tuesdays they call it, and what they do is they serve lunch and they've begun a devotional together and they have Bible study and they're really connecting with people and it's bridging kind of two neighborhoods, very similar to Harvest Hands, and there's a group of women in Bethel Homes and a group of women at First Methodist Church who have become friends and they have soup, they have lunch together on Tuesdays. A few weeks ago there was a conflict because somebody had double-booked the Athens First Methodist women to go to the First Baptist Soup Kitchen, which feeds literally hundreds of people. And so they went on Tuesday to the Bethel women and said, we're not going to be able to come next week. Please forgive us, but we've double booked ourselves. Would it be okay with you all if we went? And they said, yes, provided that you will take us with you so that we can help. And Bessie said, sure. And so the Athens First Methodist bus next Tuesday goes over to Bethel Homes, loads up with these two groups of women. They go to First Baptist Church. They spend their entire morning cooking and working and laughing and sharing together. It was a wonderful, wonderful day, said Betsy, and we were on our way home. We were bringing the Bethel women back home, and one of them said to me, you know, I really didn't want to go today, and I was a little disappointed when you canceled. I, I didn't think I had much to give. I didn't think I'd be much help. But you know, she said it was really nice to be on the other side of the serving line. It was really nice. Boy, it is nice, isn't it? It's an awesome thing when you discover that you have something to give. And it's not just nice, it's redemptive on both sides of the line for those who receive and those who give. I find myself praying sometimes that everybody could know the joy of living on the giving side. I, I find myself sometimes praying that, that I could be more intentional about sharing, that we could actually be faithful to the vows that we took when we said yes to Jesus with our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service and witness. We're not called to be religious consumers. I've gotten to the point where I could really care less sometimes about what people get out of church. I want to know what we bring to church. What do we give to God? We who have received grace upon grace upon grace are called by Jesus to live on the other side of the serving line. But you cannot give what you have not received. And so this morning, I have an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> I want to invite you to a table so that you can be on the receiving end to taste the bread and the cup and then in newness of life to live on the other side 
of the serving line so that your life might actually become the context in which others discover grace. That's my prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.